It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I really appreciated uh, Alan contacting me last year. I think we had a couple postponements, but I'm delighted to be here now. I might have preferred to be here last year because, as Alan just mentioned, I'm giving a big set of lectures in a, in a couple months. And I'd like to say that I'll be able to take advantage of all of your comments to correct and make them better. But frankly, I've already sent the lectures out to the commentators, so we'll have to live whatever they have to say. But this will eventually be published. And what I would stress is these are really works in progress. Uh, I've been uh, trying to shape them. Uh, as you might imagine, the topic might have suggested to you how controversial it is. And I'm in the process of learning, so all of your comments will be useful. My question is, should states be permitted to go to war or use warlike forms of coercion, mandatory sanctions or blockades, before they have been attacked in order to protect themselves? I'm looking at the ethics, the politics, the law of, of anticipatory or preventive self-defense. I want to start by arguing that it seems to me that international law, existing international law, is inadequate. And that's what's motivating my project. It's not being motivated that suddenly I woke up in the night and had some clear ideas of how to solve the problem. It's motivated by the fact that our existing standards, in my view, are not adequate. I think the substantive standards are not adequate in law, particularly with regard to the Caroline Doctrine, which goes back to 1837 to 41. The procedural standards are not adequate. We can't rely upon them, which has to do with Security Council decision-making. And the idea of what one does in law under rare circumstances, excuse and mitigation, is not a good recourse either. And so I'm going to argue in the first bit of this that we really do not have good standards to judge whether one can use force before you've been attacked. And therefore, not surprisingly, I'm going to try to suggest some standards. Not that they're good, magical, wonderful recipes, but that given the fact that we, the case I'll make in a moment, really need them, these are better than some of the things that are out there today and serve not again as a recipe, but as a, a grammar of deliberation when we come into those most difficult and threatening situations when the use of force <coughs> might be justifiable. And, this, and the, the elements of deliberation that I'm going to propose are the lethality of the threat, its likelihood, the legitimacy of the response, and the legality or illegality of the response, and also of the threat. And I'll explain how those come together. I've done a good deal of casework as well, and I'll conclude by just telling you the results of some of that casework under the view that it might stimulate questions if you'd like to hear more about it. First of all, the international law problem. It has three parts, as you can see above. Substantive rules are not adequate. The procedural rules are not. An excuse in mitigation has problems. What are the substantive rules? Well, conventionally, in international law, States must either wait until they've been attacked. That's the armed attack standard in Article 51 of the UN Charter. Once you've been attacked, you can defend yourself individually or collectively. Or alternatively, if you're just about to be attacked, that is, if it's extremely imminent, and I'll mention that standard in a moment, then you can use force. 
Those are the two times that you can legally use force in international law. Those are the substantive rules of international law. The armed attack standard from Article 51 is obvious. That is, that if attack is, a, is at you, you can respond. The imminent standard goes way back in customary international law to a dispute between the U.S. and the British Empire between 1837 and 1841 up on the New York State-Canadian border. It was resolved by an exchange of notes between U.S. Secretary of State uh, Daniel Webster and the British Special Envoy Lord, Lord Ashburton. The circumstances were that uh, British colonial forces on the Canadian side of the border went across the river and found a U.S. ship, a U.S.-owned ship, in a U.S. town, Fort Slosser, if there are any upstate New Yorkers here, on the Canadian border, burned it, killed a few Americans, and then let it loose into the river to go over the Niagara Falls. Uh, that was the event, and the rationale for it was that this boat was supplying Canadian rebels who were rebelling against the colonial government in Canada under Mackenzie. So the British then were, said it was completely justifiable. The Americans, of course, said it was outrageous. The diplomats went back and forth and back and forth. Eventually, in 1841, as I mentioned, Secretary Webster and Lord Ashburton exchanged notes with each other in which the U.S. accepted and noted the British excuse uh, using words that Webster had provided that would identify the circumstances under which you could use force before you've been attacked. And such a use of force had to be overwhelming in its necessity, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. That is, it had to be sort of like putting up your hand to stop a blow about to hit you. And then you could use force. I've looked back into the history of this case, and their notes are totally contrived. They don't fit the actual circumstances of what happened. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that they had bigger fish to fry, that is, negotiating the northern border of the United States, uh, US, improving U.S. and uh, U.K. relations. And so they agreed upon this fiction. But that fiction, which didn't really fit those facts, and I'm happy to explain if you're interested in New York State history, uh, nonetheless became the gold standard of imminence. It had to be overwhelming in its necessity, leaving no choice of means and no moment for deliberation. Those were the standards of international law. Now, one problem with the standard is that this traditional conception of justifiable, what's often called preemption, has been completely rejected by current U.S. doctrine, by that of President Bush and the Bush administration. President Bush has iterated and reiterated his view that as a president, it's his responsibility to take preventive measures to deal with looming threats over the horizon, not just the ones that are overwhelming, no choice of means, no moment for deliberation, but threats that he perceived. I won't expound on it further. I'll quote him from a speech he recently gave at Fort Bragg. After September the 11th, I, President Bush, made a commitment to the American people. This nation will not wait to be attacked again. Many terrorists who kill innocent men, women, and children on the streets of Baghdad are followers of the same murderous ideology that took the lives of our citizens in New York and Washington and Pennsylvania. There is only one course of action against them, that is those with the murderous ideology, to defeat them abroad before they attack us at home. Now, if this were just a Bushism, 
uh, you might leave it at that. But I would suggest that whatever one makes of the particular cases he's talking about, and, and as I'll mention later, I do not follow him in his analysis of Iraq or many other uh, supposed cases, there is something about some of the contemporary threats today that make them not amenable to the kind of standards that arguably could work quite well in 1841. And they include threats posed by non-state groups that engage in suicide uh, tactics of suicide terrorism. Such groups are by definition hard to deter. Uh, it also has to do with some states, for example, that have records and plans for aggression or plans of genocide or others that are planning weapons of mass destruction attacks either within their countries or across borders. These kinds of threats are very difficult to deter ex ante and difficult to absorb the kind of damage that can be afflicted if, in fact, they are realized. They don't fit well within that paradigm, I'd suggest to you. At the same time, adopting President Bush's doctrine, such as it is that I've quoted to you from the Fort Bragg speech, puts us in an amazingly problematic position of adopting a doctrine that is inherently subjective, appears to be arbitrary, based solely upon perceptions, uh, and it therefore invites all sorts of responses, which if others also adopt their own subjective standards, we happen to be afraid of some ideology, will produce global chaos. We will wind up preempting each other's preventive threats so perceived. We'll be constantly engaged in this circular process of escalating towards war. All the logic that the political scientists talk about in security dilemmas and chicken games comes into force in spades if this becomes the standard for when force can rightly be used. Right now, the U.S. administration considers Iran a threat. Iran considers the U.S. a threat. Does that justify mutual attacks upon each other? That's the danger. So that's what I see as the problem with the substantive threats, the substantive standards. 51, Article 51 and Caroline are much too narrow for some of the problems that we face today in the world. And on the other hand, the Bush doctrine is much too subjective. It's an invitation to chaos. Now, the usual way that dealing with rules and standards that we deal with this ex ante uncertainty and exploitability problems, that is, everybody has their self-advantaged interpretation, is that we turn to procedural standards. We use procedures to help resolve this uh, a priori ex ante uh, uncertainty or the danger that everybody will interpret it to their own advantage, the exploitability problems. So we have good procedures to deal with that. We subject judgments of this sort that are claimed to structured deliberation and contestation with other decision makers in their presence using rules of deliberation that can improve the likelihood that we will focus on a stable, viable standard applicable to all. This is, in one phrase or another, a way to formally elicit a decent respect for the opinions of mankind. Now, in current international law, wisely, such a procedural standard exists. It's called the Security Council. The UN Charter fully authorizes preventive war. And that's sometimes new, not, not to professional audiences, but some public audiences. Preventive war is completely legal. It's legal when it has been endorsed by the Security Council. 
It's authorized by Article 39 of the UN Charter, which gives the Security Council not even the right, but the, but the responsibility to determine any threat to the peace and take decisions that preserve international peace and security within the discretion of the Security Council. And in Article 25 of the UN Charter, whatever decision the Security Council makes is obligatory in all the rest of the member states. So we have a, a, a clear procedural solution to what I've described as this ex ante uncertainty with regard to the substantive rules. So anytime that you can get a vote of nine out of the 15 members of the Security Council, including the positive vote or an abstention from the permanent members, the U.S., the U.K., France, China, and Russia, you have a procedural solution to when it is that preventive force is fully legal. That sounds good, but there are two problems. One problem is that we can look in the record of the Security Council and find instance after instance, everyone has their favorite list, where the Security Council has behaved irresponsibly where at the time and in retrospect we can say the council itself made irresponsible decisions, either because a majority could not be found to endorse a justifiable use of force, to rescue, for example, the, the people in Rwanda from a genocide or to engage in uh, uh, an effective form of protection within former Yugoslavia or alternatively because just one of the members of the Permanent Five exercised a veto in their self-interest. And so if we could say that the Security Council was a scheme of complete procedural justice, that is, it was always reliable, this would be fine, but we can't. We can find in its record many instances where it's behaved irresponsibly. The second point is that we need standards for the Security Council. We don't want them to take decisions on the basis of anything goes. We want them to have substantive terms of deliberation so that when they speak to each other, they can say, this is what this case looks like, and it is justifiable for the following reasons, not just because I'm going to vote for it, or if you don't vote with me, you're not going to get any foreign aid next year, Plenty of that goes on, you can be sure. We want them, however, to be able to say to each other, here are the good, reasonable uh, criteria, and this circumstance fits those criteria, and so that this is a justifiable decision. We need standards, even if we said that only the Security Council could make this decision. But as I've suggested to you just a moment ago, the reasons where we cannot 100% rely upon the Security Council to be right and responsible and therefore, we'll need standards to say, okay, under these circumstances, the Security Council did not operate justifiably, fairly, responsibly, and therefore, a unilateral action might be taken. And second of all, when the Security Council talks among itself, we'll need them to have standards, otherwise they can't have a rational discourse when they come to these determinations. So that, we're in the position of being uh, basically, like the famous Monsieur, Monsieur Jourdain from Moliere's Bourgeois Gentilhomme, who after many years discovered that he's speaking prose, we do not have a choice. We have to speak about standards for preventive and also humanitarian interventions because it's requisite upon us if we're going to behave justifiably. The third point, however, is excuse and mitigation. Uh, one other way in law in which you deal with problematic uh, rules and standards 
is you say, okay, this event is going to be so rare and unlikely that we don't want to change any of the rules. What we want to say is that sometimes we'll just allow the rules to be broken and we will understand that rare emergency circumstance and we will excuse it and mitigate the punishment. You know, think, for example, of a frequent example of uh, a starving, star you know, parents stealing a loaf of bread to feed their starving child. Uh, very few courts would convict if those circumstances were really established. On the other hand, you don't want legislatures passing special sets of criminal laws for starving families. It's just not necessary in the normal society. And so we have schemes of excuse and mitigation in the law to deal with what are arguably these rare extreme cases that might, might uh, possibly justify prevention. That would be fine for the cases of preventive self-defense, except that it's not so rare. It's not so rare a phenomenon. It is considered, it's brought up on the agenda of states very frequently. John Gaddis, an historian at Yale, has documented its frequent discussion and use by the United States throughout the 19th century in dealing with our near neighbors. And as I could explain to you a moment, it's come up again and again in the Security Council since 1945. The list of preventive decisions is very, very long. And, for example, if that is the case, we will need to have some standards to deal with it. A paper that's circulating, I don't know if it's published yet, by Mark Trachtenberg, has documented many, many Cold War cases where prevention was deliberated, but again, without very good standards. And it's been advocated in NSC 68, our basic Cold War doctrine, by President Eisenhower, President Truman, Prime Minister Churchill. It's come up and again and again without a deliberative discussion of the sort that I think we need to have if we are going to be safer and more responsible. So we can't just deal with excuse and mitigation. This is too much ordinary business in a dangerous world talking about prevention. Thus, overall, the danger today is of those two narrow Caroline standards versus the Bush administration's, what I would suggest, is subjectivism. It resembles a medical conundrum. That is, we're likely to have too many false positives and false negatives. For the subjectivist Bush administration, too many false positives and that a patient is diagnosed with lung cancer and prescribed chemotherapy, chemotherapy when instead he has a cold. The danger of the Caroline standards is there'll be too many false negatives. When someone is diagnosed with a chest cold and, and prescribed with uh, cold syrup when, in fact, he has lung cancer. That's the danger of having bad standards. It produces dangerous policy. Today, states following President Bush's standards may well, up, well wind up invading states preventively when they pose no likely serious threat of aggression, and instead they could have been readily deterred and contained, as, for example, was the USSR throughout the Cold War. Or states and armed groups, if, if we are working within the Caroline standards, will be tolerated or protected by multilateral stalemate in the Security Council, when in fact they should have been arrested or conquered, sparing innocent victims of 9-11 or a world war on the scale of World War II. That's the problems here that I see. So that's why I think we need to try to develop new standards. It's not because these standards, are, again, are brilliant, crystal clear recipes that we can plug into. It's because we don't have much of a choice. 
So even though these standards are not going to be, as you will hear in a moment, crystal clear, they can, I think, improve our deliberation, and that's the case I'd like to make for them. They are, as I mentioned, still under construction. I may wind up revising them before this hits print in a year or two. But for now, I'd like to suggest that we should look at these four L's. I picked L's so that I can remember them. Lethality, likelihood, legitimacy, and legality. The lethality st standard is pretty straightforward. That is, it's the risk of how many lives would be lost or how many other highly valued goods like political independence and territorial integrity. That's the key issue about lethality that we want to try to measure. Likelihood gets much more complicated. In international relations theory, oh, we identify a number of broad patterns to understand when the likelihood of war rises. Uh, one of them, of course, is the, the old notion, the powerful notion of realism that focuses on relative capabilities as the best measure of threat. This view we all know here in a room of international relations scholars goes at least back to the Athenian general uh, Thucydides who spoke about this. It was wonderfully refined by Thucydides' first translator into English, that is Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century philosopher. The basic view boils down to a position that states are basically similar for the things that really count. And they're self-interested actors, they're competitive, they're fearful, they're glory-seeking. With all the uncertainty wrapped into that, war is a, a state of war, is a constant. Wars are plentiful and they're impossible to eliminate in this view of the world. But war becomes especially likely when power relations are changing, when the formally weaker are catching up with the formally stronger. The stronger then will be tempted to prevent the rising equality, and they'll be tempted to prevent that by preventive war. Thucydides' own great book on the Peloponnesian War is a story of, at least at one first analysis, a preventive war. And when he says in Book 1, Paragraph 23, what made war inevitable was the growth of Athenian power and the fear which this caused in Sparta. This is a story of a, of a preventive war being launched. Liberalism, on the other hand, another big philosophy that looks about war and peace, focuses on intentions and institutions, uh, intentions as institutionalized in intentions. One of the great figures of this is the great German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who famously argued uh, that liberal republics could establish a self-sustaining peace amongst themselves, what in the contemporary literature is often called the democratic peace. But at the same time, republics, he noted, and others have noted too, tend to be disrespectful and fearful of dictatorships because dictatorships are not similarly constrained to exercise representative restraint. They lack the, the respect for human rights that these liberal republics are supposed to embed within them, and they do not benefit from an extensive scheme of uh, interdependence that helps to mute conflicts. Both of these philosophies have their strengths, but neither, in my particular view, despite their frequent use in arguments about preventive self-defense, is a sufficiently reliable guide to assess likelihood. Against realism, for example, we see numerous instances where power has uh, crossed, shift, as American power, for example, 
outgrew German power at the turn of the, of the uh, in the early 1900s. And yet these two powers maintain peace. Against liberalism, dictatorships may not be part of the liberal peace, but most dictatorships are are actually quite peace-loving. That is, the dictator, the dictator prefers to rule at home without foreign uh, threats to himself. And wars, in any event, are rare events. Therefore, adopting wholesale, as some have done, either a purely realist model of the onset and likelihood of war or a purely liberal model will, again, create this chaotic uh, set of deliberative standards, too many false positives, and possibly even some false negatives. And therefore, I think we need to add, as statesmen have regularly done, more practical assessments of likelihood to these broader frameworks for discussing, discussing threat. Our algor algorithm must be complicated by the addition of things like <laughs> records of past aggressive behavior and expressed intentions, speeches made by statespersons to help us add to our discussion of ideologies and relative power. A good example of this is in a book by Michael Walzer where he discusses the 1967 war between Israel and Egypt. And Michael there says that uh, Israel experienced a radical increase in the level of threat when it noted a manifest intention to injure on the part of Egypt. Egypt closed the Straits of Tehran. It refused to have formed a peace with Israel. Uh, when uh, Egypt also began active preparations, it mobilized its armies within the Sinai. And thirdly, an increasing danger began to clamp down on Israel when, in order to respond to that threat, Israel had to mobilize all of its armies. It's a citizen army, and it couldn't afford to keep those armies fully mobilized. It would have destroyed its economy and maybe something more. Under that level of threat, Michael argues, even though war was not necessarily imminent, but under that level of increasing danger and threat, he argued it was justifiable for Israel to attack Egypt. This was a justifiable case of preventive war, taking that much more complicated algorithm. But we can find them further back in the past. The great uh, uh, legal philosopher, uh, Emmerich de Vattel, in the 18th century, argued that we could think about drawing upon more realist traditions, that we could think about justifiable preventive force when we could identify a pattern of what he called rapacious behavior. Second of all, a radical increase in power. And thirdly, a failure to give guarantees when other states challenge this rapacious, newly powerful state. Those three things together, Vattel argued, would provide the circumstances under which preventive war might be justifiable. So my plan is to draw upon all of these, to consider from the liberal point of view that for one liberal to another, power is not going to be threatening. From the realist point of view, pay some attention to significant step increases in relative power and decline, but also pay strong attention to uh, announced intentions and patterns of aggressive behavior as a way to assess likelihood. Legitimacy is just a catch-all to take into account things like proportionality, last clear chance, least costly means, uh, the, the effort at deliberation, so that even if it can't be done formally at the Security Council, deliberation is, is tried in other fora. Legality is my fourth and last standard. And for legality, I'm interested in looking at actual international law. And the reason is that international law provides a set of of uh, customarily uh, 
negotiated in the loose sense of that term, standards for what constitutes good or acceptable international behavior. States that regularly break the law are announcing a disrespect for their neighbors and a, and a propensity to engage in coercive potential behavior. And therefore, if we see a potentially threatening country by these other considerations as a regular lawbreaker, both in, let's call it its domestic affairs, that is radical violations of basic human rights or acts of genocide, and its international behavior, engaging in aggression and other forms of cross-border attacks, uh, then we can say that that country's behavior, with these other factors in count, poses a specially dangerous threat. And on the other hand, with regard to the response that would be taken, I will argue, or I think we can argue, that one should do everything one can to keep one's response to the threatening situation within the bounds of, of, of law to the greatest extent possible. It may not always be done, for reasons I'll mention, but that's also a sign, if you will, that your remedy is one that would be justifiable within this content of the ethics and law of preventive defense. My argument is that they go together. That is, we need to find an algorithm that combines them so that we take into account all of these, how lethal, the likelihood, the legitimacy, and the legality. If I thought I could possibly quantify this, and other than impressionistically, I cannot, I would say you could think of these as multiplicative. That is, if, if there is no lethality, you don't want to engage in preventive force because, however, the likelihood, there's no danger. If, on the other hand, there's a great deal of lethality but no likelihood, no evidence this is going to be used, again, you're not going to use force. If you cannot do so legitimately, that is, if you cannot respond proportionally, if you are, uh, are, are creating more harm than good by your response, you shouldn't do it. With regard to legality, that's the more complicated one because sometimes the law will need to be broken. But you should not engage in a, in, a, in a response that is highly illegal against a state that's behaving fully legally and does not pose a serious threat on these other dimensions. That's a little bit complicated, but those are the sets of criteria that I'd like to employ in this. So let me then uh, conclude by mentioning I'll be engaging in some studies of cases. I have engaged in some studies of cases. My three key cases that I look at are the jurisprudence of the Security Council in the post-war period. That is, what actually were the criteria used by the Security Council when it authorized uses of force or mandatory sanctions preventively? And there are many, many cases. One of the most famous is against South Africa in 1977 when the Security Council condemned apartheid but if you look at the condemnation of apartheid, this is not just a condemnation of a human rights violation, which apartheid clearly is. It looked at it in a preventive framework. It looked at apartheid, uh, acts of violence against uh, the African majority, but it also put in that same mix the cross-border attacks that were taking place uh, by South Africa on its neighbors and South Africa's beginnings of a nuclear program. The interesting thing about that jurisprudence is how it mixes domestic-level concerns about human rights and law with international concerns. Now, partly that's necessary because of the wording of Article 39, international peace and security. 
But if you look across, that continually shows up in this jurisprudence as, if you will, an authentic statement of a complicated sense of what constitutes a threat. And I think the reason behind it is that horrible domestic oppression, if combined with cross-border, even minor aggression, which is what South Africa did, it sent troops in and shot uh, some of its neighboring, the soldiers of its neighboring countries. But that domestic oppression, if it's bad enough, it creates a situation in which the neighbors will be compelled for moral outrage against the evils, for example, of apartheid, to themselves want to do something about it. If you compel your neighbors to be morally required to be your enemy, you yourself, in a sense, are the enemy of your neighbors. That, I think, is the logic of the jurisprudence that you see within the Security Council deliberations. And case after case after case, one can find it. All the way through the recent cases in the 90s, for example, the authorization for the United States to invade Haiti in 1994, the authorization to impose embargoes and no-fly zones on Bosnia and Croatia and Serbia, <coughs> and eventually, much too late, for example, the authorizations to intervene in Rwanda because of the genocide, but also because Rwanda was creating a war in the Congo at the same time. It's this, it's this mixed uh, jurisprudence of domestic and international that characterizes Secure Council deliberations on prevention. And I think that they're getting at something in terms of what the nature of threats are in the modern world, the nexus between domestic oppression and international aggression. So that's one of the cases. These cases are also, by the way, automatically fully legally justified because procedurally these are decisions of the Security Council under the UN Charter. Then I look at cases that from the legal point of view are really problematic. That is, they're not fully legal. And I have in mind, a de I have a pretty detailed look at that old Cold War chestnut, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so I read through that as an act of preventive self-defense by the United States, imposing an act of war that happened to be also illegal on Cuba for the sake of pressuring the Soviets to take the missiles that were sent out into Cuba. And I argue that even though it's immensely complicated from the strategic point of view, those missiles did pose a step-level threat to the United States, not as much as some thought. Secretary McNamara thought it didn't radically change the balance of power. But the most important thing was the surprise that was involved. Throughout the period of the early part of Kennedy's presidency, overtly and secretly, he was being promised by Khrushchev that no such thing would take place. No missiles would be sent to Cuba. And it was promised in Berlin. He was promised, I mean, with regard to the crisis in Berlin, the meeting in Vienna, and secretly, through all of the secret channels. And then suddenly, boom, it happened. The, the cabinet discussions in the executive committee then felt that what are we dealing with? Is this a power with whom we can have a deterrent, stable relationship? Or is this one of these risky countries that we need to contain now to the extent possible? And they decided at this point that they would engage in this kind of, of, of a blockade around Cuba called the quarantine. So that if one had to deal with a Soviet Union that had suddenly become an aggressive player, better on our terms in the Caribbean than elsewhere when we were less advantaged. And so they imposed this quarantine. It was an illegal act. I, if you look in the legal advisor's memoranda, there's all sorts of 
rationale for the legality because it was authorized by the OAS, but the OAS cannot authorize or prevent a, an enforcement action. So it was illegal. But it was, on the other hand, proportional. That is, it was a minimal response. Uh, it was dealing with a very serious threat with a power that previously had determined, exemplified a lot of ruthlessness. It wasn't as if you're dealing with Sweden when you're dealing with the Soviet Union in 1962. And fortunately, we now know, we didn't in the original 1960s, that at the same time, Kennedy very responsibly signaled very clearly to Khrushchev that we would withdraw our missiles from Turkey so that he himself would be able to say to his states, his fellow generals, his generals, that a deal had been struck that was reasonable that put the U.S. and the Soviet Union on a better course. That was a, a reasonable uh, a set of actions on the basis that I've just run through here. So the second is the Cuban Missile Crisis. The third is the Israeli attack on the OSIRAC reactor in 1981. This, too, is a, a very problematic case. This was an illegal attack. It was not authorized by the Security Council or anyone else. But there's good evidence that on the lethality dimension, uh, Saddam Hussein was building a very dangerous weapon. It's, the, the science is extremely complicated. Light water, heavy water, depleted uranium, natural uranium, too large a purchase. My best sense is that the best interpretation of it was that he was engaged in a weapons program. The second thing with regard to likelihood, when he was challenged domestically in Baghdad, why are you building this stuff? He said, and of course, he had just got through just in the middle of a war with, with uh, Iran. He said, this is not directed at our Arab neighbors. This is directed at the Zionist enemy. So for Israelis, that would be taken as a very significant threat. Uh, with regard to proportionality, the Israelis were in the position they could either take out that reactor in June of 81, or if they didn't take it out then, it would come live. And if it were taken out, the fallout over Baghdad would be horribly disproportional. So their last chance to do it was in June of 81. They did it at a time on a Sunday when even that was the time when most of the workers were out of the plant. Eight people died in this attack. And on the other hand, of course, it wasn't legal, the attack. But on the other hand, Saddam's own record of illegality was demonstrable in the oppression of his own minorities and aggressive with regard to his neighbors, Iran in particular in that case. And so in those circumstances, arguably it's barely justifiable. I'll be happy to talk, talk to all of the qualifications I've got in mind, but I think that fits as one. I then conclude with some contemporary cases. I look at uh, President Clinton's uh, attack on Al-Qaeda in 1998, the bombing of the coast camp. Uh, I argue that there, too, it was proportional. Uh, Al-Qaeda posed a very serious threat that was likely to continue, given the fatwa that had already been uh, issued, which was a, a declaration of war on the U.S. and the West. Uh, he appeared to have the capabilities. Uh, people were very impressed with the simultaneous attack on the embassies in Nairobi and in uh, Dar es Salaam as evidence of a terrorist capability that was quite extensive. And so trying to take out his camps was, I think, a legitimate thing to do. Lethality and likelihood were there. Legitimate, the camps themselves that were bombed on that occasion on October the 20th of 1998 
were camps just of jihadists. They were very far from the, let's call it the, the civilian uh, Afghan population. But of course, it wasn't legal. It was a it was an illegal attack in that sense. It did not have Security Council endorsement. But on the other hand, Al Qaeda had engaged in a whole series of illegal attacks on its own. And so balancing these two suggests that it's possibly justifiable. My major criticism of uh, the Clinton administration on this particular case is that they failed to take this to the Security Council. Now, they couldn't have gone to the Security Council ex ante. The intelligence was too time sensitive. You know, they, they, they were able to pin down bin Laden's uh, location just three or four days before, and it leaked out in any case because we asked Pakistan for permission to cross its territory, and Pakistan at that time and al-Qaeda were very close, and it probably leaked through there. So he couldn't have got a priori permission, but what he should have done was immediately take this case to the Security Council and say, this is a dangerous, illegal, and uh, uh, possibly even genocidal campaign being waged by a non-state group using terrorist tactics. We should declare, indict them, and establish a tribunal to try them. And he should have done that immediately. Instead, he waited more than a year to bring it, and unfortunately, uh, eventually he got a vote that what did declare al-Qaeda to be uh, illegal and subject to being uh, uh, deported uh, from uh, <coughs> Afghanistan, the demand made upon the Afghan government, but it was much too late. He should have brought it there immediately to make the case. The reason he didn't, many of you may remember, because just at the same time that we attacked the camps in Afghanistan, we also blew up a pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum, and the best that we can tell right now, that was a mistake. That is, that that was not a weapons factory, as we alleged a nerve gas plant. It was a pharmaceutical factory. It had been owned by bin Laden, so it was a good reason to be suspicious of it, but at that time it was not a nerve gas factory. And he was probably so embarrassed by the mistake that he was unprepared to make the case. Interestingly, President Reagan did make the case. He did what I would have recommended President Clinton to have done in 1986 when he bombed Tripoli in response to the bombing of the American soldiers in Berlin. And he immediately took the evidence to the Security Council and laid out what the evidence was against uh, the involvement <coughs> of uh, Gaddafi in the bombing in Germany. And he made a pretty good case to it. And he even exposed some intelligence information that he thought could and should be exposed for these purposes to make the case. Clinton should have done the same, in my view. The last cases I look into are Iraq in 2003 and Iran in 2007. I argue that Iraq in 2003 was not justifiable by my terms. The response was unlimited. It's an invasion and an occupation, not a limited response like a quarantine or even a blockade. Uh, it's true that Saddam Hussein had maintained his dangerous record, no question about that. But on the other hand, with inspectors on the ground and no real evidence that he had a bomb that was about to be made or that he would be able to transfer any of this to terrorists, there was no good evidence for that, uh, we could well have afforded to wait in this particular case. We are not pressed up on time. We could have kept the inspectors in place and reinforced the inspectors and the chance of him engaging in a, in a weapons of mass destruction attack on his neighbors or us was very, very slight in March of 2003. It could have changed over time, but we had time to engage in the further verification of the disarming of Saddam Hussein, 
And in my opinion, we should have stayed there and done that rather than invaded the country. And with regard to Iran in 2007, some very strong uh, statements have been made by Vice President Cheney and then off the record by some Israeli generals and intelligence officers about the threat posed by Iran. This is a very serious threat. Mr. Ahmadinejad has said he will wipe Israel off the map. That itself is a violation of international law, making threats about genocide and conquest. Uh, itself constitutes a very serious violation of international law. But at the present time and for the foreseeable future, they are quite far away from any chance of acquiring a bomb. Right now we're in the or uh, other kinds of weapons of mass destruction that they might transfer. We have time to try to contain that. I think it might be legitimate to impose the kind of sanctions if we don't get a better response from the Israelis to monitor uh, their facilities, the kind of, of sanctions that were imposed last Saturday on North Korea, limited sanctions, but designed to send a signal uh, demanding more assurances that they are not engaged in a weapons creation program because I think Mr. Ahmadinejad's threats are deeply serious. But we have time. We have time to manage and moderate those threats, and that's what I think we should be trying to do. So my hope, as I say, is to try to develop some standards, lethality, likelihood, legitimacy, legality, that are not recipes. You've heard me so far that this is not something you simply check the boxes off of, but that would improve the kind of deliberation that, in my view, we absolutely need right now because the Caroline standards are not <laughs> adequate for our times. The Security Council is a place of first resort but it can't be the last resort because it's often arbitrary. And moreover, even if it's our key resort, we need to provide the Security Council a grammar in which they can discuss and hopefully take the right decisions that allow prevention to be done when it needs to be done and not done when it shouldn't be done. And having better standards, is, in my view, is one way to move in that direction. So thank you very much. I welcome any and all reactions. And uh, I look for your sympathy for trying to deal with a very hard <laughs> question that I don't have good answers to yet. So thank you very much. Schmidt tells us that such an effort is intrinsically problematic 
because in such extreme situations, there are states of exception where the law in effect does not apply. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm left wondering whether you are trying to subsume under law or under standards that which cannot be subsumed, or maybe another way to put the mm -hmm. question is, what is the sort of normative character of these standards? <coughs> They're not legal standards, are they moral standards, or what kinds of standards are they? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, as you anticipated, I think partly in your question, for the we, it's all of us. There's another liberal trope. <laughs> uh, it, it is all of us. That is that I want, I, I want the Security Council to have standards. I don't want it just to be a matter of power-based bargaining. I want them to be able to talk to each other and hopefully persuade each other. So I want the Security Council to use these kinds of standards. But at the same time, I want national statesmen to have these standards in their mind so that they will use them to make the case at the Security Council. We have a common language. Uh, so that if at the Security Council they run into opposition that's principled base, you know, strong reasons here that either they couldn't, didn't think of or that persuade strongly the community around them, they might be willing to back off. Now, I know that's amazing. That's very a naive assumption. Most statespersons don't back off. But the hope is that if we have a better chance of that kind of a rule of law if we have standards. And I all thirdly want these standards for the statesperson to use when he or she says, no, the Security Council is wrong. I want them then to go to the court of their public opinion and say, we have to do this. They've said no, but they're not just arbitrary out there. They're wrong by standards that we all should agree to. This is that, and put the case out to the to the public. So that's the, that's the purpose behind it. Now, partly that addresses your your question that you know I'm I'm rejecting Schmidt's idea that there is that space out there that's absolutely a function of who whom power and nothing more than that trying to stretch the standards of law uh, in the broad sense of the term law, I'll get to that in a moment, uh, over areas that have typically been dealt with simply as a matter of force. And that's, that's the agenda here that I'm trying to do. You might say, okay, who do you think you are <laughs> to do this? Which would be a very reasonable follow-up question. And the answer is I know that this is an academic exercise. Uh, it's designed to provoke discussion, which may or may not make it out of a couple of uh, university presses. So I know all of that. But I'm still playing the game, which is arguably a liberal game, a rule of law game, uh, uh, a discursive game. Uh, uh, a lot of this is Habermasian in inspiration uh, that is designed to improve discourse. And I think that's intellectually interesting even if I can't bet that it'll have a long-run influence. But lastly, I'm, I'm too much of a, of a policy person not to have this, this fantasy <laughs> in the back of my head that somewhere 20 or 30 years ago, a guy named Francis Deng, who's a uh, very good uh, uh, diplomat from the Sudan who now lives here in the U.S., had this idea that states weren't completely sovereign. He said that we should think of states as having responsibilities to their people and not just rights over them. And if a state doesn't fulfill the responsibility to protect the, their own people, that should devolve onto others. He wrote a nice article about this about 25 years ago. 25 years later, 20 years later, the government of Canada sponsored something called the International Commission on State Sovereignty and Responsibility. 
Uh, and that commission went all around the world discussing this issue of when is there a responsibility to protect, wrote a great report. That report then came to the UN. I was the person who managed the, the uh, rollout of the report. And I couldn't even put it inside the UN premises. The member states said, we don't want to hear anything about this. So I had to book them in a hotel across the street, hoping to attract some of the diplomats to come hear them. And five years after that, the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine was unanimously adopted by the General Assembly in September 2005 as a new statement of responsibility. So somewhere back in, in the back of my head is sort of Francis Deng 30 years ago writing this nice little article that somewhere through processes that you can never predict produce an outcome. And that's that for. And the standards, as you suggested, are both ethical, uh, legal in the broad sense of law, but I don't want to necessarily legislate this. I'd, I'd like to see them <coughs> standards rather than, you know, revising the UN Charter. I don't, these are, these are too open-ended to be good international law rules. Uh, happy to take any other questions. Yes, please. It just seems that uh, I think it's a really interesting exercise, and I like this set of standards, but it seems that these are essentially the standards that are in practice now. Mm -hmm. you, you sort of went through some of these cases, like mm -hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it mm -hmm. seems like those standards were basically applied. Mm -hmm. So how is this so different from what we do now? Mm -hmm. Especially since you're not proposing Right. which might be an alternative. Yeah, okay. What, what is new? And the answer is, to me, thank goodness, not everything. It would be weird if I suddenly, you know, Michael Doyle academic invented this stuff one day. <laughs> Everyone would be scratching their head, where would this come from? It's not new. Some of these concerns have entered into the deliberation of real statesmen when they were behaving responsibly, which is, to me, reassuring. A lot of these standards, as I mentioned, I can find embedded in the debates that took place in the Security Council, and that's reassuring to me. And I can find it in some of the discussions in the XCOM, for example, and in other cases, in some of the deliberation in Israel in 81, where we're now getting some pretty good accounts of some of the cabinet disputes. But what the reason why I think this is nonetheless useful for an academic to do is it hasn't been put quite this way yet, you know, sorting out what these criteria should be. And they are contentious. You know, the Bush administration would not sign up to this, as I've just implied to you. You don't hear them say it in this way. And I have colleagues in academia who think that the only relevant concern is relative power, and that's the only one to be looking at. Others, uh, some good friends of mine, who think that any dictatorship that gets weapons of mass destruction is uh, a prima facie case for intervention, uh, that is, for preventive action. And for me, not enough. I can imagine dictatorships with a strong, good record of legal behavior don't engage in massive human rights violations at home, don't attack their neighbors, but could acquire weapons, even weapons of mass destruction, that would not be so threatening that it would initiate a grounds for preventive action. And so I think by ref pulling out, excuse me, and refining some of these standards and rejecting some of the others, this is a, a marginal contribution. The newest part of this is, frankly, the legality part. Uh, lethality, likelihood, legitimacy, this is basically standard ethical decision-making. You can find it just about anywhere. Rolling this into it is, it's not new to lawyers, uh, but it's new in this package. For the lawyers, this has much too much proportionality and calculation in it. And 
On the other hand, for the non-lawyers, rolling in the legal <coughs> is somewhat new. But on your point, you know, I don't want this to be brand new. I want this to be a refinement of best practice. And then once we articulate the standards better, my hope is it'll make practice even better by clarifying our grammar of this. That's the, that's the, the A. Yes, please. But isn't there another part of it that's new? And by the way, I applaud your guts for diving into the mm -hmm. subject. You were right to, 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 to say this is a hugely mm -hmm. complex and, and tough to wrestle with. Because there's something you alluded to in some of your examples early on, mm -hmm. which is that it seems to me you're talking about assembling a set of standards for states mm -hmm. when one of the great threats of our age is non-state actors. Yes. Right? So you're yes. talking about mm -hmm. states agreeing on standards right. for states right. and that may not be the real threat. Worse still, that those non-state actors yes. are in many cases cat's paws of state actors. Some, and yes. So, um, we're not expecting non-state actors to sign on to these. No. So yeah. uh, I guess I don't know as much of a question as a comment. But yeah. I didn't go into it, but I've got another short section of the paper where I talk about you know those non-state actors that use terrorist tactics, people whom we call terrorists, so to speak. And in my view, non-state actors that acquire uh, weapons, of especially weapons of mass destruction or even weapons with a large potential impact, like uh, large caches of dynamite and other forms of uh, serious capability that have made clear announcements that the nature of their enterprise is one that's engaged in uh, a struggle not bound by any rules, not to speak of the rules of war. That is our sort of our model of uh, Al-Qaeda, for example. Those, I think, that we should regard the way pirates used to be regarded as enemies of mankind and institutions should be formulated that deal with them as if they are criminals. They've joined a criminal conspiracy. Now, we have one good institution. It's called Security Council Resolution 1540, which does criminalize this activity and any state that harbors, trains, funds, supports them. That's good. Are, the law is there, so to speak. This is binding now on all states, 1540. Every state has to report that they're not doing such a thing. And if they are, stop it. So that's a, a good step to the law. The problem is it has very inadequate enforcement. It's not clear how it will get enforced. You know, maybe Security Council, maybe not. Who is really responsible? What, what, what are, the, what are the, the penalties for failing to abide by the 1540? That's not adequately established. It's open up in the air. And I think that should be clarified. What are the penalties for failing to abide by 1540? And the second side of it is where are there protections for individuals who could be wrongly named and described as terrorists? You know, Joe Blow has a little bank in, uh, in Stockholm, and uh, Joe Blow has clients in the Horn of Africa, and they're moving money between these <coughs> two. And one of those clients, unbeknownst to Joe Blow and his bank, may be uh, uh, alleged to be tied to a terrorist group. And suddenly, Joe Blows and his bank is named in a Security Council list in the Sanctions Committee, the 1267 Committee, and boom, he's out of business. He's suddenly closed down. Terrorist is pinned on his front door. Uh, his kids are harassed in school. Uh, he's bankrupt. Without any ability for him to appeal that decision, and moreover, have a, a process of indictment that he could argue against it before it's officially declared. So there, there is no rule of law procedure that protects an innocent Joe Blow from the procedures of the 1540 committee. 
Now, there are three cases right now heading to the European Court of Human Rights out of Sweden of individuals who were victimized in just that way, claim they're innocent. It's already been uh, adjudicated in Swedish courts. They've been found to have no connection with terrorism. The appeal is going to the European Court of Human Rights so that the European Union will protest the 1540 sanctions process. And we need to create an institution that is fair to individuals and, secondly, has better enforcement capability attached to it. So that's my view on how we deal with the terrorists. I'm not trying to create rules that that legitimize the terrorists and act, ask them to behave according to them. I want to outlaw the terrorists as criminals. But I want to make sure that innocent people aren't wrapped up in the criminal charges in ways that are not fair. Yes, in the back? And if I could kind of follow up on, on that. Mm -hmm. It seems like DOD doctrine is evolving in such a way that uh, explicitly the threat landscape is tilted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about cases where you have like training camps where it is patently obvious the intelligence is there right. that they wish to do harm to yeah. US troops? Mm -hmm. Yes. The doctrine is going to be to take them out somehow. Right. And this is going to be the case for mm -hmm. the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that affects one and two under the standards. Because mm -hmm. for any given camp, mm -hmm. the contribution they make to lethality. Mm -hmm. Be small, right? Like a bombing of an embassy once yes. every so many years. Right. It's not good, but uh, yeah. it's not war. Mm -hmm. um, likelihood as well. Mm -hmm. like, can this camp be able to get it back together? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so it seems like the policy is going to be the, that sort of preventative action mm -hmm. is going to be legitimate for US policy. Mm -hmm. Respectfully, but under this rubric, mm -hmm. I don't see it ever being. Mm -hmm. For me, it would be. I mean, you're right that lethality is low. You know, 9-11, horrible as it was, by the standards of wars, is low, okay? But lethality is measured both by deaths and by its impact on things like political independence. Uh, and in that regard, an attack upon American territory, 9-11, was a lot worse, horrible as it was, than the 3,000 individuals who died. So it's a serious threat. The second is that terrorists who have joined a group whose aim is to inflict uh, uh, you know, murderous assaults on anybody, non-combatants, combatants, for the purpose of engaging in terror, are, score very high in the likelihood dimension. If not right now, at some point in the future, they've committed themselves to that. They've joined a conspiracy to do this. With regard to legitimacy, uh, if you can do, if you can take them, in ways that are proportional, the way you know Clinton tried to do on October 20th of 1998. He didn't bomb uh, bin Laden when he was going through the Kuwait airport. He bombed bin Laden when he was in a jihadist camp only occupied by jihadists. And that's a more proportional attack. Legality, everything they're doing is illegal, and my my, my, my reform is to create a better enforcement mechanism for 1540 so there would be some greater degree of automaticity than relying upon a Security Council vote. But that's not there yet. But for me, I would, I would say that dealing with these non-state actors that adopt consciously as part of conspiracy terrorist tactics and who have a record of doing so and the capability, they're pretty clear candidates for justifiable preventive action. Yeah, Rick. 
I know one of the attempts you had, if you mentioned it, was to constrain subjectivity. Mm -hmm. That's, That's right. what you thought was the problem in the other. And mm -hmm. I see you've at least organized mm -hmm. the subjectivity into categories now. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not persuaded you've constrained it very much. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking of mm -hmm. your examples of Iraq in 1981 mm -hmm. and Iran in 2007, and I'd have North Korea right. to put sure. it on to 2006, yep. maybe. Yep. It seemed to me if Japan tomorrow decided to attack North Korea, mm -hmm. it might fail in your legitimacy category because mm -hmm. more harm probably than good. Right. But they could make the lethality argument much mm -hmm. more strongly than you could for Iraq 81 or Iran, mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Right. And, and it seemed to me that if each of these mm -hmm. as you've walked through them, mm -hmm. Bush could walk right through them and make mm -hmm. Iraq, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Iraq 2003 sound perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you have an NIE right. that says mm -hmm. they've got WMD or we're right. close to it. Mm -hmm. uh, he would argue, as you did about Iraq 81, I mean, mm -hmm. Iran today is much further along this nuclear program than Iraq, Iraq in 1981. Mm -hmm. Iran is operating in Bushir and mm -hmm. light water reactors. Uh, Iraq was just building them. Right. Right. Uh, even the standards in your examples mm -hmm. seem to be sliding around. <coughs> and when you mentioned a moment ago that lethality is sort of psychologically experienced. Mm -hmm. Well, everyone's uh, damage to themselves is psychologically more severe than right. any damage to other people. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm worried now that these mm -hmm. are going to collapse in right. terms of any real constraint, right. not just subjective interpretation. Right. Now, that's, that's exactly something that has made this project so difficult. Yeah, I would have loved to come up with rules rather than these kind of standards. So that you know, you check off the box. This is that, and the whole advantage of armed attack is that it's not ambiguous. When troops cross a border, well, there are arguments about the nature of the elements of armed attack, but it's much less ambiguous than anything that I'm talking about here. So the danger of subjectivism that I charged against President Bush is also present in this. Certainly, is the case. My my justification for it is that the alternatives are worse. That is, it's not as if this is good, that we've solved the problem. You know, suddenly we have a, uh, a, a wonderful, powerful decision algorithm that produces uh, completely reliable decisions in most or a vast majority of cases. That's not it. There's going to be exactly as you described, this kind of attention of alternative interpretations. It just, it's, it, it's irreducible in my view. I've struggled. You know, maybe I'll do better within a six months or a year or so, but this is as good as I can get it right now. The problem is that these are worse, in my view, in the world we're in. And we need something that allows us to, as you say, sort of structure or <coughs> categorize the subjective arguments that are going to be made under the view that if we ask them to be categorized in these kind of ways, it's one step better, a significant step better, than describing just murderous ideologies or only looking at things like lethality or assuming that every uh, <coughs> dictatorship is inherently threatening. This is one step better in terms of organizing a grammar of dispute than the alternatives. That's not to say that I'm escaped from the problems you described. I think they're there. Uh, they're inevitable in world politics. We just, we just, we're never going to have really tight, adequate rules to deal with the kind of dangerous world we're in. But this is one step better than having no grammar for this kind of disputation. That's the best case I can make for it right now. Thank you. Thank you.
In the back, please. Yeah. Um, funny, Alex really got the real estate tonight. Um, <laughs> more me, so I didn't have to do that. Um, my my question is: This is like preventive war is inherently uncertain. It's about predicting the future, right? Long term, not it's not preemptive. Mm -hmm. It's preventive. Right. So we're talking long term. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to get these things um, clarified to the point that we're going to agree on likelihood or lethality mm -hmm. or. lot in that, needless to say. Um, you know, um, I, I, there's some kinds of actions that you can't get ex ante deliberation of this sort about. You know, there is an emergency that has to be dealt with, or the mere revelation that you might be acting would uh, make it impossible to act. The Israelis in 81 did go around talking about the level of their concern about the OSIRAC reactor, but they never publicly announced they were going to blow it up. That was not for a good reason. They said if they're going to blow it up, they don't. They want it to be a surprise. But there are a lot of other actions that can be deliberated about uh, in ways that uh, will hopefully use some of these standards, and the case can be made. Uh, that the threat can be handled over a period of time because it is more remote. And I have in mind the deliberations over South Africa in 1977. It wasn't as if by deliberating about the threat posed by apartheid 
that you could you'd be prevented from acting against it. No, you could act against it through the imposition of these mandatory sanctions as a way to, you know, but they didn't immediately collapse apartheid, needless to say, but they did make it more difficult for the regime to regard itself as legitimate outside the country, inside the country. It uh, legitimated some of the assistance to some of the opposition, eventually raised some cost. It sent a message to many South Africans, eventually to Clark and Mandela, after things became internally intolerable, that this regime was one that would always be pariah unless it changed. And so all of these things were useful, and that you could deliberate about. Imposing sanctions, which is an act of war, you know, they're mandatory sanctions uh, under Chapter 7, is preventive, in this sense, preventive self-defense. And you can deliberate it in advance, and deliberating produces a better outcome, widely regarded as legitimate, and could have some good long-term effects. Not immediately, because they're only sanctions. So some you can't deliberate about, some you can. And on the, on the last point that you finished up on, you know, international politics is full of anarchy in all of the senses of that term. And uh, this is an attempt to mitigate it. Now, how much mitigation we can do, we can't be sure. You know, if, if we're in a, in a set of uh, regimes where the major actors are all uh, risk takers and have projects that are imperialistic or aggressive, this rhetoric will only stay within an academic context and have no more bite than that. But if we're in a regime where many of the major actors are more moderate and are looking for rules of the road so they can get about things that are more important like economic development and you know, assisting the, the basic welfare of their populations, rules like these can be helpful. And so that would, that would be the only case for them. Right there, please. Yes. is, you know, if a liberal state were to announce that it, it, it intended to, you know, eliminate some other state, it's so horrible and responsible that we're going to uh, invade it and improve it. And, there were, and that was a clearly made statement, for example. Uh, and it mobilized the capability to do so. Under those circumstances, uh, that kind of a, of a project, you know, the liberal version of Ahmadinejad, if you will, would be violating these kinds of standards. And with the standards like this, they could well be invoked against them in deliberative terms. Now, if you're talking about the United States, it's a very hard state to constrain, given the superpower status. And the difficulty we face is that when we move in that direction, making those kinds of threats, if, if, if President Bush were to say, we're gonna wipe uh, North Korea off the map, we're putting ourselves in the position where the North Koreans, who knows how Kim Jong-il thinks, but a reasonable North Korean would feel as if their security is being fundamentally threatened. 
And that's why those kinds of threats are dangerous if anybody makes them. But they're more enforceable against the weak. That's the nature of this world. But uh, they're not just for liberal states. This is a dialogue that China can engage in with the US deliberately. deliberately. Indeed, that's what happened last Saturday. Uh, that's the kind of dialogue that went through when sanctions were imposed on North Korea. So it's not just liberal. And the reason, one of the emphasis on the standards of legality is that legality is something that can be uh, invoked reasonably by uh, all states prepared to follow within the framework of the rule of law. And that's the reference you're Yeah, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, I've been struggling the whole time to figure out how wide or how narrow number mm -hmm. four is. Mm -hmm. And it seems of a very different character. Mm -hmm. um, what is the standard of legality? What's, mm -hmm. it, what's it designed to actually do? Mm -hmm. it's, it's designed to create, as I just mentioned a moment ago, rules that are uh, neutral amongst a wide variety of different kinds of regimes. Not all regimes, because some regimes, genocidal regimes, are inherently illegal. Uh, and regimes that engage in, you know, systematic and fundamental extreme abuses of human rights are themselves bucking up against legality. But for all other regimes, it's a set of rules that are neutral among them, so that by following they can signal to all other states their willingness to uh, abide by rules of the road that do not uh, explicitly threaten the survival and fundamental interests of other states. It's an attempt to get us out of the pure subjectivism of what I see as some of the Bush uh, terminations, where those we don't like, or those who have a bad ideology, or other considerations enter into it that don't provide a framework for deliberation, whereby you can say more or less. And this isn't designed to do that. So this is, in a, in, I mean, as I'm, as I'm watching and listening, this reminds me civil disobedience um, mm -hmm. uh, discussions mm -hmm. in, in, in the 60s. And this is almost a publicity mm -hmm. requirement, legality. Mm -hmm. Initially, you, you, you made it sound as though it's a function of international law. Mm -hmm. But it's much broader than that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, you have, you, you're, you're trying to design some set of, mm -hmm. of, of rules that, uh, or softly rules, mm -hmm. that we're all supposed to be willing to play by. And, right. and, and, and it doesn't even matter, it sounds like, whether this is, <coughs> Accountability part. It doesn't have. It, it doesn't have to be something we play by or acknowledge we're going to play by uh, beforehand. As long as we're willing to come back afterwards and say, "Oh, we're willing to have some sort of accounting mm -hmm. against this right. notional legality." Yeah. I, pr I prefer both. I mean, elsewhere in the paper, I talked about two things that uh, are controversial, but I, I think they're worthwhile. One of them is that the Security Council should be the court of first resort. <coughs> no one unilaterally engages in preventive action unless you take it to the Security Council and present it there and make the case for it there. Uh, that, that's why I think, you know, despite the fact that most of it was fiction, what Secretary Powell was trying to do was the right thing to do in this context. And many of my colleagues in the field of international relations and in international law say, no, don't embarrass the United Nations. You know, don't take anything there if, if, in the end, you can't guarantee that you will follow it. Don't make it, you know, don't make it look irrelevant or, or ineffective. 
And I disagree. That is, that institution is there for testing purposes. And so I want states a priori to adopt these kinds of standards. And the first instance of taking security council and see if they can persuade other security council members to agree with them, the nine out of the 15, and in which so you've crossed the legal barrier completely. You have an act, you have a rule of law system. But then I also would like to institute as a, a statement, like in the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine, that every Security Council member, including the P5, will regard a request to investigate as a matter of procedure and not of substance, and therefore one for which the veto does not apply. So after, if a unilateral act takes place, uh, uh, an investigation could be done by the Security Council to determine whether or not this particular act of unilateral force was done justifiably. Um, and that would be by a vote of 9 out of 15 with no veto on the basis of it. And that would be so that a priori states would know that it would be difficult to sweep under the international rug an illegitimate act of prevention, hopefully providing one more ounce within the deliberative mechanism to deter uh, uh, exploitative acts of uh, aggression under the cover of prevention. Now this is getting pretty idealistic, frankly. This is not, wouldn't be popular among any of the P5. The US wouldn't have to veto it, the other four would do it first. Uh, but nonetheless, I still think that from a, a, uh, an administrative law or a procedural point of view, it would create some useful incentives. I don't go as far, as for those of you who follow this literature, as Buchanan and Cohen have recently done, where they set up an automatic referral to the ICJ with penalties attached if you have uh, violated the law and penalties if you've wrongly vetoed a justifiable uh, uh, act of prevention. They create these symmetrical penalties in this fashion. From the, it's a lovely design from a, a procedural point of view in order to enhance responsibility. Even for me, that's too far off into never-never uh, land. I, I have a susceptibility to move partly in that direction, but I won't go that far. But I would want to see a public investigation and partly appealing to the publicity doctrine that you've referred to with regard to deliberation. That even if nothing's done to us, I want to have ability to criticize us if we, if we invade a country wrongly. And if, on the other hand, we invaded a country rightly ex post, I want to embarrass countries like Russia was embarrassed in 1999 over Kosovo. You know the story there. The, the, a vote was never taken. I think a vote should have been taken. We would have lost Russia with a veto in 1999 via the Kosovo. Russia foolishly turned around and tried to condemn the United States and its allies for intervening in Kosovo, and it just lost flat out. It barely got another vote. And I want that kind of a mechanism to be in place. Uh, but formally, through a full investigation done impartially by a, a commission of uh, impartial experts uh, who look into whether it was justifiable or not, and then report to the issue. Yes, please. Yeah, I wonder whether you actually have checked for the four air standards. Mm -hmm. I guess what is really going on in the Security Council, for mm -hmm. example, the party debate mm -hmm. between, let's say, France and Germany on one hand, mm -hmm. and the the other for the Iraq case, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Russia, China versus US, Japan, right. or North Korea case. Or they really, I mean, is there any way that you can re analyze <coughs> the, the st uh, statement mm -hmm. because along the four, four lines? Did you no. That is, I, I found it on a number of occasions, and uh, when I've, s I've seen it, I put it forth as a model for how it should be done. 
as, as, as people who follow the UN know, you know, some Security Council decisions are made without any deliberation whatsoever. You know, I think the, uh, the, just the authorized invasion of Haiti in 1994 to uh, restore Mr. Aristide to his elected office as president was, all things considered, a, a reasonable action. I'm very pleased that it didn't turn into a real invasion. Instead, uh, Sidras was prepared to hop on a plane and leave. But nonetheless, I think there were reasonable grounds for that in the circumstances of, of Haiti. But that's not the way the decision was taken. The decision was taken, the U.S. came in, the U.N. had been involved, deeply embarrassed on the previous negotiations. It looked horrible. It was looking for somebody to hand the problem to. They could hand the problem to the U.S. Uh, Russia was a persuaded to do it because we gave them a license to impose a peacekeeping operation on Georgia, one of its recalcitrant neighbors. So basically, this was simply uh, a cut deal was, was done. And so the deliberation on the Haitian uh, episode, you'll find some discussions about you know, what's happening uh, out there uh, in Haiti itself and how it's spilling over into Haiti's neighbors, the Dominican Republic, how refugees were showing up on the Florida shores, on how this was likely to continue, that Sidras was making money off the earlier sanctions that had been imposed. An argument, some argument, not enough argument that it could be done effectively, that was not, that was not done. And then the, some of the law standards, if Security Council says so, it's automatically legal. And then we looked at what Sidras had done, it was auto, very illegal, the coup that he had staged in Haiti, both by inter-American and, and Haitian standards. So some of this stuff showed up, but not a lot. Instead, a deal was cut. You may know that last Saturday a deal was cut as well in the deliberations. The American press hasn't, hasn't reported it fully, but a deal was cut with Russia with regard to the North Korean resolution. The US and the Chinese deliberated about what the best thing to do, and they made some promises to each other, which Rice is now collecting while she's out in East Asia. But with regard to the Russians, we just cut a deal with Lavrov, the foreign minister that we would write, we would agree to a new resolution on Georgia that's radically unfair in my opinion, but Russia really wanted it in return for their vote on the North Korean resolution. I don't think that deal should have been cut, but we live in a real political world and they do get cut. So this is an ideal set of standards and I can find some examples where it's done well, but I would never claim either in the Security Council or elsewhere that this is the norm, that it's always done this way. Since we have a reception to follow, I want to thank Michael now, and you can put more questions to him later. I, I must say, whether it's a matter of law and at least the local standards, I have to ask if there are any undergraduates under the age of 21, please stay away from the alcohol or we will be hauled away. By, by proportional and legal standards. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Michael. Thank you very much.